0: Hello! My name is Branson. I'm an urban planner and a farmer. A lot of the time, those two things seem like polar opposites. Let's change that. Welcome to Center Left Right, where I explore pragmatic solutions to radical problems. start off, I'm pondering the question, what can a city do to close the loop between growing and wasting food? Which is really all part of the bigger question, what can a city do to turn agriculture into a vital tool for climate change mitigation and adaptation? I'm thinking about urbanity in relation to agriculture, because agriculture is what allows cities to exist. Yet, the food systems of our cities are causing roughly 40% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions ultimately undermining the very agricultural systems that afford the abundance to feed cities in the first place. With this radical problem in mind, I got on the phone with farmer, activist, anthropologist, and educator, Linda Prim. Linda and I met at Rodale Institute, where she was my boss when I was in Rodale's organic farmer training program. Now Linda is the senior director of Glenwood's Farm at one of Hudson Valley's not-for-profit agricultural hubs, Glenwood. Linda has a wealth of experience studying, thinking about working hands on with this very problem. Well, I'll let her tell you about it.
1: Well, my farming career has been in, you know, it's okay if it's all in rural agriculture.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that's what I'm saying is it's kind of like it's I don't see this this divide of like urban food systems as greenhouses in in urban and oh i see I'm what you're it's like saying we, we yep. eat in urban environments because there is rural agriculture
1: yeah and i just want to make sure i i want to mention something to you so that i don't forget are you familiar with um the book Drawdown? yeah
0: i was going to ask you about that that's that's, that's my next question
1: <laughs> okay so okay so um, I'm right. I just grabbed it and opened it to reduce food rate, waste. That, that's
0: literally um, what I'm talking about right here. That's the whole okay. project. So yeah. And
1: so, so the thing is that, well, I have the book because I'm going to. So there's this drawdown New York City kind of extravaganza going on, and I'm the keynote. So basically, my boss. Um, Kathleen Finley is going to interview me about farming for resilience and in and a changing climate, and you know renewable energy on the farm and things like that. Um, and that's and so rather than my giving a presentation, she's so maybe this is good practice for me. Yeah, it's because, like a little warm up um, round. A little warm up. So um, so basically, my my background. History is that I started as an ethno in ethnobotany cultural ecology and looking at food production systems, um, which included both growing and gathering food. For you know, my work began in the southwest, and my interest I had a National Science Foundation undergraduate fellowship to look at the keys for sustainability in traditional agriculture systems and so I started kind of at this Pot Creek site which was was the ancestral site to Taos Pueblo so there are these pit houses and associated fields and so it's kind of like looking at the most minimal use of the landscape for food production with like basically zero waste, zero energy except for human calories and Um, just this maintenance of of the genetic diversity necessary to that that was basically as long as you could keep the genetic diversity going you could continue to produce food and the distribution was pretty much no miles so Um, By that, by that, you mean you're looking at systems that were so like minimalistic.
0: So by that, you mean it's almost like subsistence. I mean, people feeding
1: themselves or or, it's subsistence. It's subsistence. It's basically subsistence. But one of the places where I work that sort of then made me realize like what, what we think of as subsistence, which is like grubbing out a you know a food production or a livelihood from like scratching the earth kind of impression or very poverty type impression um, is that and and actually my colleague OJ Lockheed and i always used to like refer to this kind of agriculture i'm going to describe as high level subsistence because then i worked so then i went to um, i realized after i did my field work in anthropology that i didn't really want to continue in academics I wanted to do I wanted to farm basically I think I always wanted to farm but I really wanted to farm I really wanted to put my boots on the ground and and really be involved in and not just like studying this but doing it so anyway at some point I went so I get to the High Desert Research Farm at Ghost Ranch and we were looking at So we were really a genetic preservation project, mostly for wheat, barley, dry beans, um, staple crops for arid lands. But a lot of our seed, of course, was from the southwest region, like the teparies. And we were the first project to grow out seeds for Native Seed Search before Native Seed Search really existed as an organization. So when I was doing that, I engaged with this anthropologist, Dr. Florence Holly Ellis, who was working at Zia Pueblo, And Zia is like more south of where I was, where my farm was, and kind of near Albuquerque. And this is like a group of Pueblos that were on a river, but the Spanish, when they came, enslaved the the indigenous people to grow food on the valley floors, because that's what they understood. But the people went to these gardens that had been in continuous use for 3,000 years on these natural terraces on the mesas. And what they would do is they would take the basalt rock and border the gardens, mulch them with gravel, and collect all that runoff. So all the, all the elk droppings, all the nettles, everything is like running off and depositing organic material in these gardens. And there were 500 acres Branson, of these gardens. And that was like, okay, this is not like what we usually think of as subsistence. This is feeding a lot of people. That's this abundance. is feeding communities of people. This is producing enough corn for trade. And, and obviously, uh, uh, this was all probably... Be- you know, due to a lot of things like the Anasazi, I mean, a lot of us working in the Southwest felt like the Anasazi dispersed because their population exceeded their ability to produce food during a drought, like many years of drought. Hmm. Because, and then they dispersed, and that kind of knowledge of growing food dispersed with them. And so that's, I feel like we came from a place where. People had the capacity to feed large populations like the zea They were because they were hiding all this from the Spanish, had no idea about these gardens. Apparently people were like store. They had corn storage up there. They had like manos and matates to process the corn. So this wasn't just, oh, we we scratch out a little garden in the earth, which is what the pit houses were, where my my work kind of started these pit houses, but these pit houses were populated probably after the Anasazi had to disperse because their population exceeded their ability to produce food without water hmm. when there was like prolonged drought. That's that's one theory. Some people think there were other pressures like warfare, but I basically, if you look at what's happening now, what happened in Ethiopia in the early 80s, what happened in Syria, before the revolution is basically people push the limits to growth. People exceeded their ability to produce food with the given resources, mostly water.
0: Well, this is the Malthusian trap that has sort of haunted economists in the sense of, you know, if the economic Holy grail is growth, but we have this, the limited resources of the planet. I mean, this, and this is why we are in this climate crisis. I mean, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's the exactly. challenges of, of the past, I think are, are coming back toward us with now, as opposed to, you know, a couple thousand people or hundreds of thousands of people, you know, eight billion yeah. people almost. So
1: it's yeah. amplifying so migration, enormously. migration is no longer an adaptive strategy because there's too many people and the competition, like really, if you like strip away all the politics and stuff s- swirling around all the things happening in the world right now, really, what it's coming down to is, and like it's no, it's like barely talked about. at least not it's not like clearly talked about is is like there's shortages of food. There's, I mean, we've been talking. I remember, like OJ, nine eighties, talking about, you know, look, our ability to distribute food is being basically taken away from us by corporations. They want to control food distribution, and and it has to do with oil, and it has to do with trans shipping, and it has to do with all these things. But they're basically they can control the food supply by controlling distribution, and the less people growing food like empowered to grow food not growing food for corporations like you know all all this right and so but now really behind all of it food and water are going to be the most scarce commodities on the planet right which is and at the same time everybody's going oh you know agriculture is a lot of the reason for you know and so yeah we need regenerative agriculture because basically you know we're not regenerating carbon in the soil we're not like you know we're, we don't have a system that can that can self-regenerate or be self-perpetuating anymore so and yet we have all this population pressure so I feel like that's kind of been what's you know the trail that that I've been on in you know over my career and feeling like you know like in the 80s when i was at ghost ranch and doing this work at zia pueblo and thinking okay 500 acres that's a lot and all on the nat- all utilizing the natural landscape elements so very energy efficient but what happened is and why i was involved in this project is because it was a landmark water rights case hmm to prove 3,000 years of prior water rights, because for 3,000 years the Zia were using runoff. And what had happened is, like, because of deforestation, mostly of these oak forests by the Spanish, and, um, you know, other... and climate change, um, the, which the all the elders... You know, when you would talk to the elders... Like, I had to give this paper at the American Anthropological Society meeting, or Archaeological Society meeting, about this project. And the elders like sat down with me before I went and said, you have to tell the people that the people didn't do the prayers. They didn't do the ceremonies. The rain stopped coming. The runoff, the the rain that fed our fields stopped coming. And we were so we're no longer able to grow food in that way. And they weren't like that wasn't some like warm and fuzzy thing. They were basically saying we have abused. Our privilege, you know. We haven't, you know. That's that's how they would say it. You know, the people didn't say the prayers. The people didn't you say that the people were washing their cars. The people are deforesting. The people are, and and they they realized, you know. So these were people who were in their seventies and eighties, you know, in in the late nineteen eighties and early nineteen nineties when I was doing this work, and they. They already, they could see it coming. They already understood that climate change was happening. And there were all kinds of like, you know, I heard all kinds of things that were these indicators that they saw this coming. And yet, and also the the other thing is that those systems, no food was ever wasted. And in fact, you know, food had to make, you know, the war chiefs had to grow these other cornfields, which also like, that were our ceremonial fields. But that's basically how seed was saved mm-hmm. and it would ensure there would be seed to go to. The, it was how basically people, lots of people would be fed. Like if to this day, you go and like tourists go to this thing. And I'm not sure that they understand like these dances, these ceremonies where you feed everybody, all the tourists, everybody, they prepare food for days. This is about how you meet food shortages this is how people have this is about resilience like people will be fed so now that is just but now Brandon what you're talking about is like we've gone to the far other end of the spectrum yeah. <laughs> where we generate all this food waste
0: and and we and I think you know you've touched on basically everything that that sort of I have laid out as questions and I'm thinking a lot about, I mean, in the sense of genetic diversity. And I think when we really dig into that and you're, you're talking about sort of the distribution models, I think the challenge between sort of the monocrop growing, the 90 million plus acres of corn that we have in the U.S. And obviously corn originated here and and w- through yeah. within these traditions, but but has gone, I think, maybe to such an extreme, you know, that we've stepped outside of um what I've heard described as like the Milpa system um, into this, you know, 90 yeah. million acres of one crop. And and, and so much of that uh, is related, I think, directly to the distribution systems, you know, r- related to uh, the, the the grain mills in towns. I mean, how are farmers gonna sell their product? Because it's, it hasn't been, it's no longer about this community, it's about a commodity. And there's a big difference there. Um, and-
1: Community being the keyword, yeah. It's the community thing, right? Yeah. And so, you know, so I even think about my, the town where my farm was in Dixon, New Mexico. It's a hole in Budo Valley. But it goes all the way from like this region called um, the, the kind of... Um, there's basically like three watersheds that kind of connect and dump into the Embudo. Embudo means funnel. So all this water coming down through the Rio Embudo and then meeting the Rio Grande. So all the communities around, these small little like unincorporated like Dixon, like less than a thousand people, tiny little villages all over the place, every single one of them had a molino to process corn. And a lot of them had one molino, like one little, one, Mill that processed the corn, and another one that processed the chili to pres- to to preserve it. But every little town, so every little farmer would go to the molino in their village. That that only ended in northern New Mexico in the nineteen late nineteen fifties. Some of them still existed when I was there, like you know these really old guys. <laughs> and actually my um, the my farming. Uh, partner, this woman, Felicity Fonseca, who, so we, we had a CSA between three farms and she was really into growing blue corn. And so we would take it still, we were still having the blue corn that we were taking his cornmeal to market or tamales or however we processed it. We were still getting it milled by this guy in our town. When he died, Nobody else really knew how to run the mill. And it's just like, that's kind of, when you think about it, like this whole industrialization thing, this whole commodification thing, it started in the Midwest certainly early, but really, I feel like, Branson, it's like a blip in human history compared to how much history there was where agriculture was family farm-based, even in the midwest
0: well i mean that's in many ways that's very hopeful because i mean and and i i kind of feel that that's the attitude we have to take is that you know in over this the geological time frame of history we're talking about basically a hundred year period where we've really screwed up Um, which in in the geological time frame doesn't even show up um but the question is have we screwed up so badly that we can't fix it, um, and 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 are we going to act fast enough to um, bring back some of these? I, I don't even know if it if if it really is bringing back because I think the population pressures you talk about I don't know how it fits into that system because you're right to say that it, this there's not a migratory fix really, um, and so it I think it's a little bit of. Something I'm very curious about is, you know, where is the balance of understanding these traditional systems? I think part of those traditional systems might be the economic systems might be the value of community, but then also understanding, okay, what have we gained actually through some of this technology in the sense of you talk about key line design, I mean, what, what if, what if that becomes more of a possibility not only because of of the equipment but also because of the digital mapping you know the ability to actually do this highly accurately um, and be more efficient in that regard Uh, so it's not sort of a guess and check game it's like well we know exactly every single tiny variation in the field
1: right and for me like i came from the west you know where like key line was the difference between you know ranchers and and in eastern New Mexico and and Texas, being able to have water for their livestock and not having water for their livestock, or in Vermont, where you know this this in you know in the aftermath of Irene, it's like we figured out how to use the key line to drain soils that otherwise would never drain, and and so I feel like now I'm in a place where I got here and it's like we have a key line, but on so many like to me, that's a really like, we hacked one at the at Native Seed Search. We hacked a roller crimper. We hacked a key line, you know, because we couldn't afford the tools. And now I'm on farms like like this farm has a yeoman's key line plow. It sits parked somewhere until I, so I never got to do a key line, like, kind of a, I wanted to do a primer with you guys. And even if we didn't get to use it to say, because you, I'm mentioning this because I can, you, you know, Yeoman came up with a pretty foolproof system that even with a bunyip leveler, like one of those water levels, you could figure out the key point and do a pretty accurate key line design. And that's the thing. We, if the true mark of resilience, I think, Branson, is can we use these tools at every single level? Like what if people don't have access to a laser level or GIS, you know, drone mapping or whatever, you could still, you could still implement, you could still use the basic concept to use the tool. So I do feel like something like a key line, yes, it required steel. Yes, yeah, but it's like a forever tool if you maintain it. And it doesn't, it's not a tool that requires, yes, it requires a pretty powerful tractor. But it's not a tool that you're using like every time you work a field. Maybe use it once a year. Maybe use it every three years. I mean, I feel like we should be looking at the technology, like what is the appropriate technology?
0: Well, so just to, ba- to back up a-, a-, a touch, can you just explain um, in, you know, a- as sort of simplistic terms as possible, I guess, the philosophy behind the key line plow, for instance? <laughs>
1: Okay, so it's basically a subsoiler in its most, you know, elemental sense. It's a subsoiler. It's a subsoiler that, by its design, can go very, very deep. But it doesn't turn soil over. And the concept of key lining is to align with the contours or sometimes slightly off contour and also to find these key points. If you're interested, I'll send you this like very brief primer that I put together. But it's like you find this key point and what you're basically doing is opening up that subsoil so that water can move laterally because water will tend to move laterally before it will move down and guide cuz water is underground and it's moving water is in a natural system is moving under 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 the sub in the subsoil through the subsoil and And that's what Yeoman figured out. So,
0: so when you're, when you're, when you're, it's it's not about getting water on the surface to penetrate so much as it's it's actually looking at the subsoil water movement and being able to put that into little channels so you can actually pull it across your field as opposed to just sort of filtering down the lowest points of the field and not being accessible to crops. Yeah, because you
1: want it to like spread out because water will spread. I remember. And I can't remember who was, I know she's, this was a long time ago at a BD conference, at a biodynamic conference. And this brilliant woman was who, like, no one was really listening. She was really elderly, and she kind of talked slowly and everything. But one thing she said, it was like, it was like one of those moments where, like, a light went on for me, and suddenly, like, she was illuminated, her words were illuminated, and she was saying, water will move, horizontally before it moves vertically and I'm like of course because water is just like you want sometimes to drain a soil you need that water to go down into the subsoil but because of soil compaction um, and things like that that isn't happening anymore or like in Vermont after Irene the soil was so saturated that the water just—it just was like it could only sort of like percolate in the surface, and and so How did to you make even get it go down. Oh, it was challenging. It was really, you know, when the water subsided, it was challenging. But these pastures, like literally, the pastures, the plant, pasture plants were being suffocated because their roots were just in water, and so we drug these things through the field with it. Like, you know what really worked was like things with tracks that had tracks rather than tires. So you had
0: to go get some serious tractors.
1: Oh, yeah, it was serious. It was serious work, but it was like there was no... And then, like, this one guy in Vermont figured out, oh, we can mount planting boxes in the back of it and go through our pasture, and as we open these pastures up to drain, be doing reseeding. Hmm. And basically, then you have plant new plant roots, like, sucking that water. And also, like, in permaculture, you I, maybe you've seen, like, planting on the edges of pastures, like open canopy trees, the tree roots are... Draw, they're doing the same thing. They're drawing it through the field if you can sort of imagine it like there are natural channels water just doesn't go down and sit in a pool in the subsoil it does sometimes like there's literally something called sub irrigation but what you want to do what yeoman figured out is you can pull that water you can create channels and that'll like open up the flow of water at the subsoil level and then the it'll uh, that water will then you know be absorbed if in the soil structure has it has it moves and that's and and people in you know, like these ranchers in Texas have actually found key points like in valleys so that they can channel the water to an irrigation to like a watering hole
0: well, I'd, for you know stock. i'd sort of seen this in, in the permaculture classes but I, I never fully understood that it was actually about the horizontal movement of water and not the vertical movement yeah, i always thought yeah. it was about water penetration yeah. of the soil. so that yeah. for me what you've just explained is kind of like mind shifting um because i mean it really makes a lot of sense now um and and why that's so, different from just yeah. you know your standard subsoiler like,
1: yeah But I think it's like so and then the other thing, you know, kind of back to your thing of the original question about food waste, because I could I mean, we could go on about this for hours. And I think you basically understand where I'm going with all this. And I mean, so let's the other thing is like we got into this place where it was like production, like production volume rather than the quality. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, and like, I, I remember. So that's
0: the question about cities in many ways, because because there is this disconnect and there is this uh, these distribution models where people are, you know, like look at the cereal aisle. That's something that I've I've talked about in in, in uh, one of the papers that I recently wrote. I mean, what is the cereal aisle other than a lesson on on you know large amounts of grain aggregation? <laughs> that's what it is, right?
1: Well, it is. It is, and then, you know, then talk about all other kinds of material waste. But so I just, just yesterday, actually, um, it was the deadline to submit a pre-proposal for the, the FFAR, I always forget, the Something Farming Agricultural Research. It's a USDA funding. And if you look at who they fund, it's mostly universities. And they're like big grants. They're like quarter of a million to over a million dollars and and they're they're all farming research it's all farming research and it's about all the topics we're talking about but as I'm looking at this and then I sort of led me like should we really apply could we even like remotely be competitive unless like we hook up with Cornell and and looking at this then I went to like I saw some announcements for their conferences and you look at who is presenting at those conferences and who those sessions are aimed at it's all industry it's like keynote speaker general mills hmm. and actually it's interesting because cereal. i'm in i've been given a ticket to the fred Kirshenman lecture series fred Kirshman's now on the board of of, um, of uh, stone barns stone barns that's another so we work a lot with stone barns and they're like you know they're funded by Rockefeller so they have like something like a 40 million dollar budget um and the most expensive restaurant on the planet but they but anyway I I look at who they're having has a speaker and it's somebody who works in value chain supply for General Mills well it... and you know what was happening when we were at Rodale it's like it's like all of a sudden oh we're all going to hook up with industry but it's like no 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 don't go there that's the model that's destroying the planet <laughs> like all this overproduction There's
0: a there's a there's a question to be asked about a seat at the table for the people who are having the biggest impact because realistically you know general mills decisions and their sourcing and supply chain or whatever other nestle whatever other large company we're talking about their supply chain is so big that if we're if if they make marginal shifts and i'm not necessarily arguing for this approach i'm just saying i think this is the philosophy behind it that if they make marginal shifts that adds up to more of an impact than 10 csa's could ever have Right, and or however many you know small farms, and, and just in the sense of you know they're talking about trillions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds, if not tens of thousands of farms, um, and so it, the you know for them to say okay we're going to be you know organic or whatever the case might be in ten years from now is a on the big picture scale of things a sizable shift in terms of chemical usage and all of these things that adds up far beyond what a a few small farms have. But the difference is it's not necessarily really addressing the underlying distribution and underlying economic model that has caused these problems to begin with. And I think that's exactly what you're saying is that without doing that, you know, are we actually going to fix this problem? Because if if it's just sort of substituting one chemical for another, yeah, that's a little bit better. That's it.
1: To me, well, yeah, it is a little bit better. I mean, I quit being, an, you know, for 12 years, I was an, ins- an inspector, and I was an inspector only in, like, maybe the first year or so of under the NOP. I was really, like, not one of the people who thought we should go to the NOP, but the, to have it, you know, be a federal regulation, because it's kind of where we are today, but that that was inevitable because it would open the door. It did. It opened the door for the corporate entry into, or for the entry of industrial agriculture into organic. But my argument is that it's not going to be, you can call it whatever you want, organic, regenerative, but it's just, you know, regenerative is going to go the same way as sustainable went. And It's going to be trademarked by people like Rodale. And, you know, just, it's just, and the problem is the use of resources, the, the it'll limit access to land. Because what about vegetable production? I mean, are we forgetting about vegetable production? The thing that is, there's this book that was, I'm all over the place now, because there's like, You know, I've just been, like, thinking about and talking about this for, like, 35 years, so sometimes it's just, like, overwhelming. But there's this book that was published in the 40s, like, I don't know, 1945 or something. I haven't seen a copy in a long time. We had a copy at Ghost Ranch, but it was called The Masters of Grain, where this guy was talking about, yes, we're going to, like, we're going to get people to plant more and more and more grain, whether that be corn or barley or wheat, more and more and more grain, because then we can transship it then we can like you know need more petroleum and and basically the corporations want to control it all they want to control the land the growing and production the distribution all of it well and actually that's what's happening yeah. and then we're going to turn it into cereal and flood the shelves and 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 make people have low nutrition because they aren't eating a balanced diet and it's a grain-driven diet and and it's just like i feel like now we're starting to see you know all these illnesses that are you know vague like you know everybody isn't celiac let's face it but why is there so much sense to, you know all of it is kind of now getting to a place where then that drives the the medical industry now now you're seeing like the the doctors which is a good thing in a lot of ways all these physicians Wanting to get into you know nutrition, it's like oh well, when did you wake up that you know nutrition is our medicine? Like, but it's all driven by this sort of corporate industrial kind of economy. And the what I would argue is like it's not resilient because it's on such a large, it's a mass scale, it's monocropping, it's limiting diversity, um, and If there is a disease, if there is a transportation, you know, anything, the climate now is 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 interfering with distribution systems. Like, we don't even, like, talk about the relationship between transportation and agriculture. Rarely do you see anybody talk about that. Arrow did a brilliant study in the early 90s about, like, tra- the impact of transportation on agriculture. And, and like, with climate change, we're going to see those distribution systems. We're going to see, you know, where farmers can't get in their fields to plant these mass amounts of crops. But... But on a small farm, if you're a little CSA or a small farm, yeah, you're struggling because the economic model doesn't really work for you. But on the other hand, you can adapt. So
0: let's let's talk about the little <laughs> CSAs in the small farm. So in your experience, you know, what are the different outlets for a small farmer in terms of sales? Because all of this is is, I think, really important. We know that small farms are critical to this conversation, I believe that, and obviously you believe that, um, but it doesn't really do any good if those small farms are going under financially. Um, and so, what are the distribution models, and what has your experience been in terms of how different distribution models—farmers' markets, restaurant suppliers, wholesale, CSAs—affect yeah. farm planning, you know, the, the actual harvest and processing, and, and ultimately the bottom line for a small farm. Okay, so
1: I'm going to somewhat frustrate you, and I am a little bit, because in my, you know, so here's where I am with the answer to that question, just to be like completely honest and transparent. I feel like the model that we've been talking about, that we see is, you know, problematic, and I would say not a resilient model, um, which In climate change, I think, you know, you can sequester all the carbon you want, but if you can't figure out how to make the basic systems of life resilient, including people, then we're in big trouble. So, but I would say that I feel like we're in a transition. That's the only thing I can describe. Like, we know that this other model, we went too too far in many ways. And now we're trying to take something that we went too far on and put a different like, a put a different cast on it, or a different, make it a different color, or, you know, whatever. But you know, make it organic or call it regenerative or put a different spin on it. But we're still not addressing certain things like scale and population growth and distribution systems and all that kind of stuff. But right now, it's like we know where we've been, we know what's wrong with it but we're in this transition period where we don't quite know what's going to take its place. I don't know. I know what I, I know what I think the elements are and I see like the things that make me feel hopeful. So what I'm, what I would, if it's of interest to you, we, so Glenwood, Glenwood is kind of a interesting place. um, That, so, Glenwood has this like a state that basically isn't a trust for us. And so, it's an amazing place to convene people. And that's in our president, Kathleen Finley, she's that's her thing. Her thing is like convening people, bringing people into leadership roles, like finding out who the change makers are, and making a place for them to, co- to form coalitions and convene. So, we're in two coalitions. Um, one in which I chair, which is the Hudson Valley Farmer Training Coalition, which is like Stone Barn and us, and the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, and uh, Soul Fire Farm, which is a black farm. Um, it's it's a farmer training for black farmers and for repartition. Yeah, I've, I've seen Leah, Leah Penniman, Yeah, she's, you, know farm, she's, you know Leah? Yeah, she's phenomenal. Okay, so, yeah. So, um, uh, and then... Um, Farm School, NYC, which is Onika Abraham. They're another black farmer training organization. So we're like a coalition for farmer training. And basically, and then Hawthorne Valley. And so I'm working with two people at Hawthorne Valley right now to put, and we're putting together a research project. And we're working with Onika Abraham in terms of how to form the questions for like young black farmers. But but basically, we're going to do a research project to say, where is farmer training going? Like, are we really getting people on the land and keeping them on the land? And and like, you know, just to really look deeply at how farmer training is, like what we're doing that's working, what we still need to do, and who, and are we, you know, really creating change in a new generation who can be, who can farm resiliently. And and kind of take this where it needs to go and then there's this other co- then we also founded this CSA coalition and right now it's just New York State But we just I just sat in on a webinar because we just finished a marketing study And I thought that marketing study there were things that were surprising to me and and like in terms of like we haven't even touched The population who we that most of the population still doesn't have a clue what CSA is, and and so we haven't even we're we're reaching a very um, limited population sector with CSAs, but the but what did come out of this study is that most people think of it as their primary source of vegetables before they shop anywhere else. And so I think like we're at such a nascent stage, Branson, of like where we are with CSA and what that could be, what that model could be. And I feel so, if I have one regret in my life is that I wasn't able to make Rodale see how important that that agriculture supported community program was. And like it took eight years for that program to sort of figure out how to reach low income people. And we were just really starting to figure it out how to work with, you know, other community. But it was all about community. And and I do think that's kind of. You know, it almost feels corny to say it, but I do feel like it is about community. That's that's something you can't grow small-scale agriculture and justify it or 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 basically explain its impact without talking about community because that's how we impact the food system by creating these communities. And people have said it for years and different. I wrote an article about it like in years and years ago, 20 years ago, like like, about food sheds, like, a concept that actually was created, like, in the 50s. And I still, and there was this huge study, all the, all the international churches, like, got, put money into this FAO study that, that was very in-depth, very scientific. I think it took, like, eight or nine years to complete. And basically, their recommendation was the only way you were going to feed the world was through agroecology and community-based agriculture. And this was like top scientists, top researchers, like really scientific, like social science, like soil science, everything was in the study. And how many people even know that study exists? Because that recommendation was not really what, you know, certainly corporations and You know, they they weren't funding it and they they that doesn't support their take. But I I want I guess I'm just saying, like, I think we're in a very we're in a transition. It's really nascent. We have some pieces of the puzzle but like where is it all going
0: so i want to get with that i want to get a little bit technical um just sort of just to focus on on what i think might be one sort of policy vision to maybe give it a little shove um so something that i'm thinking a lot about is you know we do have this food waste problem um and we also have this issue of how we're changing local food systems and building communities so yeah. I've sort of laid out in, in a paper that I've recently written um, and, and been thinking a lot about this concept of connecting food waste in as compost for Smaller farms, basically looking at that expense, and obviously yeah. you can produce compost on farm. But if you're looking at buying compost, um, you know, as a as a farm input uh, for a smaller farm, that can yeah. be expensive. If you're looking at a larger farm system that's attempting to transition to more ecological farm systems, that might be an expense that they're not really able to bear. You know, if you're talking yeah. about a yeah. 500 acre farm or something, that's that's going to get yeah. really yeah. expensive really quick. Um, yeah. So looking at sort of municipal subsidized compost, I think, you know, within the compost models, you have New York City, which is basically they're going to give it away for backyard gardeners. You have uh, San Francisco, which is going to sell it through their for-profit partner Recology. And Recology does great things, but it's a commercial venture. And and so it's, you know, they're coming in at pretty low prices. You know, it's like $7 to $10 per cubic yard, which is relatively inexpensive. But... Nonetheless, that's a lot more money uh, than, you know, if you're putting 30 cubic yards of compost on a field, on an acre, you know, that that starts to add up really quick across dozens of acres. Um, So looking at what, you know, could municipalities, if they're collecting this food waste, if they're composting this food waste, could they give it away for free for farmers? I think makes a lot of sense. I'm curious if you think that makes sense. And I'm also curious if you could explain, like, what is the value of compost within a farm system? Within these, this sort of yeah. transition um, in looking at soils. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So one, just the first part. I think that's a brilliant idea. To give it should be given it should be given away because that would be consistent with the organic, the principles of organic or regenerative, like, you know, all those th- terms to basically close the loop. Like we take it, we remove it, we put it back. Only we're now doing it. It's, it's like across the world, urban divide, however you want to define that. You know what I mean? But it's like coming off, it's feeding people, it's going back. But because of the scale of that, I do feel like it's a political social, economic, kind of, it, it's going to require that. It's going to require, like, more than municipal, kind of, it's, it's, its how am I trying to say this? Just because of the scale of it, I think it has to be, um, I, I guess we have to have more, we have to have policies. And, and they have to be like supported at the municipal level, the state level, and even at the federal level. And if you look at, re- I mean, I, I'm assuming like you're somewhat modeling this after how we got so many cities and states to adopt recycling. It's going to be kind of the same thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the major difference is that recycling on the back end is actually a commercial venture. Right. It's this selling, that yeah. it's selling plastics onward to somebody else who's going to who's going to transport Right. It. I think the the, the the. But
1: I guess that's why I'm saying I feel like it has to almost be like a socioeconomic, political, well, I think, politically driven. I, I thing. think
0: it basically I mean, the way that I envision this, you know, coming out of this community planning master's program here is saying, OK, I'm a municipality. I'm looking at climate change. Uh, Like, I've run on this as a platform that I'm going to make my city green. So, there's a couple of ways of doing that. On the surface level, there's we're going to improve public transportation and all of that. That's great, but it's not getting at the frankly the largest consolidated source of yeah. climate change which is uh, you know agriculture um and so saying yeah. we have this food waste issue we you know most landfills are looking at you know, somewhere 20 to 50% of their landfill is organic waste which means it could be composted yeah so if we could yeah. be taking that and we could be putting that back on small farms Um, in changing regional food systems, basically by giving this subsidy that could add up to tens of thousands of dollars a year for a farmer. Yeah. Um, That really, I'm seeing that as a municipal policy that could, you know, a mayor slash city council could just say, all right, we're gonna have this collection program. We are not gonna get money out of this. This is an investment that the city is making Um, and it's as simple as that. We're just investing here. And then we're, you know, that's so that's how I it's an investment in fixing our climate crisis. That's how I view it. Um,
1: Yeah. And I, I think it's like saying, like, I like to say to when I'm a consultant or to beginning farmers, like the biggest investment you're going to make in this farm is your soil. It's like the most important investment. It's not like it's very hard to put value on it, but it's definitely like without it, you can't create value. So I think that's a lot, and you are more of an expert at this point in regional planning than I am, but I guess that's what I'm saying. I feel like it has to be, like, politically motivated, and I do feel like, like, I think there 10 years ago, I wouldn't have said what I just said to you, but I feel like because we have people coming up through the political ranks, like Octavio Cortez, you know, like, we have people who are going to, to sort of understand this conceptually and why it's important, and they can actually envision how it works. But that's, that's I think you're on, I, I agree, and I think it's on the right track, but I think it's going to take something like, you know, I mean, think of the jobs it would create.
0: Well yeah, I mean looking at looking at even But just it's local an investment imbef-
1: we have to, getting people to look at it has like yeah to look at it as an investment rather than something that generates profit or you know increases GNP or whatever, like that's a that's a total conceptual shift. So but
0: I so part of that though, I think comes from understanding what the value of compost and the value of healthy soils are in a farm system. So yes, just very yes, briefly to sort of yes. sum all of this up because I think you, you've you've given <laughs> us you have given like the, the the most important statement here, which is the biggest investment a farmer could make is in their soils. But why? I and think how does how so. does compost fit why? into why?
1: Because okay, so I think that compost is something that helps restore well one it helps the soil build organic matter which is basically then storing humus and carbon and you know and will help and it's the, the it's what we need to help farms stay in intensive production now I do I think cover crops are a part of that and you can do a lot with cover crops, but you can do it much faster with compost. And you can you can have much more intensive systems with compost. And also it's like these systems, self-generating. So like if we started where we started this comp this conversation from, it's like there's a principle in the way that the earth functions. And that's it's like It takes whatever is waste and puts it back in the system to generate new life. And it just like goes around and around and around. And that soil was at one time a self-perpetuating, self-regenerating system and like that's what i saw at zia it's like oh of course all you do is put the basalt rock to border these gardens cuz that's what the zia had and it serves multiple functions one it collects heat during the day and radiates it off at night for without the use of plastic you know you get enough night radiational cooling to extend the growing degree hours and then you mulch it with gravel so that those nutrients stay in the soil. You can plant repeatedly year after year because that rainwater is washing nutrients like right into the field, delivering them and keeping them there. Now the systems we have for farming now, because we're feeding so many people, is that you have to have some inputs and we don't want you know we know that we've got to even in organic farm we've got to stop mining inputs and transshipping them from other places because it's too energy intensive and we're mining the earth and like it's we can't we can't keep doing that that's not sustainable so this is something that is sustainable we generate food waste we put it back we generate food waste we put it back that is at least mimicking a natural process
0: yeah I, I mean
1: and yeah i mean that's the key thing there but it's just you know it's I, sometimes i get really frustrated listening to like the carbon sequestration arguments because it, it's just we're we're we we're now starting to treat carbon like a commodity and it's like if we could just stop thinking of everything as a commodity Like how we're going to make money, how how, how we're going to make money on this. Like I think it's a limiting, it's it's limiting. Yeah, we all have to live, but it's like it's keeping us from looking at things because there's always an economic value placed on it, which believe me has been my reality, you know, a good part of my life. But as long as we keep looking at that as the driver of, you know, what, what makes us change what makes us adapt what makes us like innovate then i think we're we're kind of doomed because it's it's not it it clearly to me is not working i mean here we are you know in human history so evolved technologically but we still have Inequality, we have like classism, we have like in any, you know, we don't have equal access to opportunity and wealth. Like clearly there's something wrong. And with the system, like you have, and, and, it has all the. I mean, everybody knows. Many people have written about it. It's all the symptoms of a dysfunctional system, and of course, all, many of our institutions, even nonprofit organizations, are dysfunctional because they're just the product of, of a dysfunctional universe. You know, right now, it's like, of course. So, I think you're talking about something honestly that takes a like. We have to start asking the question are we still resilient as human beings which means can we adopt can we adopt like in a socioeconomic way can we adopt to having a very you know having our whole society be based on something that serves nature rather than ourselves well
0: and i think i think
1: the starting or some economic motive
0: i think the starting point to that is Reframing that agriculture is, or rather, reframing what we currently have to, to understand that agriculture is an urban issue, and I think you've you've used the term, you know, the urban-rural divide, and that's a very real thing. We see that playing out politically. We see that, you know, clearly in terms yeah. of just sort of consciousness of where things come from, um, but I for me, so many of these issues that we have in terms of judging everything from its economic financial value um, in this huge disconnect from its its value to our ecosystem that we are a part of is because we see ourselves functioning as sort of urban beings outside of an ecosystem. And I think you could trace that all the way back to, you know, biblical questions, frankly. Um, And and yeah, yeah. you know, Adam and Eve clothing themselves, I would even say, sort of setting one apart from nature. But the uh, as that is playing out now, I think I'm sorry, no, okay. I was trying no, to <laughs> uh, okay.
1: oh, I don't know how I do that on my computer. I listen to a lot of things. On that's my computer, OK. But I, what I was trying yeah. to do is find this article. Did you see the article? Um, you read the atlantic yeah, yeah
0: occasionally yes
1: so there was an article in their science section about the cataclysm it's called the cataclysmic break that maybe occurred in 1950 but as you get deep into the article it talks a lot about agriculture in kind of geophysical terms and um should i send that to yeah, you yeah
0: i would love that
1: it's really good it's really good well
0: so I'm going to just sort of we could talk about this for for days and and I I, I I look forward to um, being closer to the Hudson Valley. Um, I won't be too far from there about an hour and a half or two hours from where you are currently so we can get together and continue this. but for the purposes of um, what I'm trying to get across with this this question, yep. I think that the, the key takeaways that you've really helped shine a light on and the value of is, is this question of, you know, considering agriculture as part of, of the urban equation. And that means looking at distribution systems. That means looking at, you know, if we're looking at inequality, that starts with our food systems. I mean, how can, how can somebody, you know, work toward better education if they literally can't eat? Um, or or they are eating a horribly unnutritious food, um, and 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 that is just sort of the basis of of equality. If we have the very nutrition that we it need is, to live, that's
1: exactly it. Those are the conversations like that we're having with Soulfire right now. I mean, aside from doing like white supremacy training, which is brutal, but um, it's we're having these really amazing conversations about this. And that's, and these conversations also need to, they're part of it, I think. It has to happen. And like you have like Farm NYC, Farm School NYC, this amazing woman, Onika Abraham. And basically, they're training young people, like they're training them in many different ways. And they're like having to, they they don't even have their own office. They're like in a public space. But we're trying to figure out how to get those young people onto farms in, through apprenticeships and um i just think that that's that's also part of it so it's almost like this undercurrent that's happening that has to change our notions of one we have to get through a lot of like racial and class inequality issues that i think now we're being really forced to confront and um you know through through the efforts of of black people really and i i think that there's that level and 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 like you're saying, like really recognizing that, um, that they're in the same, in the same way with the same intensity that there's an urban rural divide and, and it's, it's built over time and that we've removed so many people from any connection to the farm, which is why I think CSA still hold a role. And I do want to tell you something kind of entertaining, but also really hopeful is that So I got invited to this dinner at this fabulous – maybe you've been to it because it's a famous karaoke place called Insa. It's a a Thai restaurant called Insa, and it's in the Bronx. No, it's in Brooklyn. It's in Brooklyn, sorry. And um, anyway, it was this – Event hosted by Isabella Rossellini. Do you know who she yeah, is? Yeah, actually,
0: she she um she graduated in my graduating class at Gallatin at NYU. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. So I, she I went don't back. To, we were having. But... I was having this conversation with her, saying like she's like I went back to college at 67 because I wanted to like you know I because so she helped this event for the American Minor Breeds, um, Association to say, you know, it's really important, like, these animals are also a key, these animals who are, who can still adapt, just like we have to adapt crops. I, I had an amazing, she's a lovely person, and I had an amazing conversation with her, and, and I do, so I feel like those things give me hope, because people are having their eyes open to, like, to that, we have to address this on the level of biodiversity. We have to, le- un- unlike social and racial equality, we, there's so many levels. But I do feel like there's an undercurrent, and it is it is going to require, I, I really think it's going to require real political change, because even in the Obama administration, like, Who talked about soil or even agriculture? I mean, honestly.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you you can look at people who you pointed to the USDA and it's highly disappointing. Oh,
1: my God. It is highly disappointing. But you need to give me before we go your email. And then I'll send you this article. And I'm just going to send you this primer on Keyline because I I think it's pretty – it's real – I use it with the apprentices and it's usually like I
0: said what you've what you've just explained has really changed my understanding of it because I always thought it was about percolation down and I understand that there's value to be gained there but movement across is a whole different mindset so I'm really looking forward to reading more about it and understanding more Um, maybe I can try to implement some of that on the farm where I will be the um, assistant farm manager in this moment of transition Um, and um, we will we will talk more Soon. I'm really excited. Uh, Linda, this is no, a very inspiring I want to hear more about this. A very inspiring conversation. So,
1: okay. Well, to be continued, okay?
0: Thank you so much, Linda. This was so much fun. And as you said, to be continued. <laughs>